Hey everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of Mikeadelic. I'm Mike Brancatelli. Thanks for being here. Thanks for checking out the show. We got a great episode for you today with my good friend Adam Aronovich. And you know, I just realized that sometimes I say we, we got a great episode for you today. We got a great guest. I hear other people say that too. I suppose it's maybe the royal we, since I'm lording over this podcast landscape. Uh, But maybe it's suiting for this episode, referring to the collective uh, and not the hyper-focused individual. So a little background about Adam. Adam is a, a doctoral candidate focusing on medical anthropology and cultural psychiatry. He's also a research coordinator working in collaboration with ICERS, uh, the Beckley Foundation, and the Center for Psychedelic Studies at the Imperial College, conducting uh, and coordinating research, uh, and uh, also as a workshop facilitator. He facilitates uh, workshops at the Temple of the Way of Light, working with ayahuasca, working with the Shipibo people. And, uh, you know, Adam has spent uh, a, a bunch of time, many years studying traditional societies as an anthropologist, and his research specifically focuses on um, different perspectives to medicine and healing and mental health uh, and uh, in various cultures and how people in different cultures experience health and illness differently and what it means to be healthy and whole and, and, and sane. Uh, and uh, his, his work is, um, is really, really remarkable. I mean, I really, really respect Adam a lot. And I think that he brings uh, a really much needed perspective to uh, our world and our approach to uh, being healthy and, and, and healing. And, uh, and you hear these words like thrown around so much like healing and integration and like, you know, uh, trauma and, and these kinds of things. And Adam really uh, shines a light on, uh, you know, the, the qu- sort of questioning the premise from our sort of, you know, dominant uh, crony, corporate, capitalist, hegemonic, medical, biomedical, monopoly mindset that, uh, that maybe is leaving some pieces out of the story that isn't actually a whole and complete picture. And, uh, and, I, and I really appreciate the conversation uh, based upon Adam's uh, research and experience that's being uh, brought up. And uh, he made a Facebook post that, that really grabbed me. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's time to talk to Adam. And he was talking about how you know, we're really infected with dis-ease and that we are isolated and alienated and that everything seems to be focused on like, well, I have to heal myself and, you know, it's my truth and my story and, and my healing and, and my journey and me, 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 you know? And uh, although the intrapersonal and psychodynamic dimensions play an important role in the healing experiences. Um, his research has shown the data that he's gathered over the past four years of field work down in the Amazon, uh, multiple facilitating multiple workshops and, and doing dozens of interviews reveals that there's a different story uh, to this healing that we are all seeking. And the experiences that people consider to be the most important pieces in their healing process are very much in alignment with the Amazonian cultures and traditions from which these practices originate. You know, and it's like we are going down there with our Western mindset and our, you know, hyper individualistic, culturally and economically reinforced 
attitudes and beliefs and trying to to sort of plug in and then come back and uh, you know i don't know use this newfound healing so that you could come up with a multi-level marketing scheme and make yourself a bunch of bucks and be like oh wow i'm healed and i'm successful and you know like what is that what is what is healing if not uh integrated into the whole of of who we are as a species and how we relate to the planet and to the non-human uh intelligences um that that we uh that we share this this earth with and that you know that we're we're not isolated we're not in you know approaching things in in a, in a vacuum where nothing else touches it and it's and it's just uh, this compartmentalized sort of uh you know individualistic focus and you know I can drone on and on about this but it's better to let Adam talk about this because he's the expert and that's why he's on the show uh but you know what else can I say about this guy other than I love him and I think he's great and uh, I love talking to him and um you know, I just think that uh, these are the kinds of conversations that I want to put forth, that I want to have, that I want to showcase. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, a, a crucial, crucial part to our healing journey is for everybody, all of us as a collective, as, a, as one united we, to go to sheathunderwear.com, get a pair of sheath underwear, and put in the promo code Mikeadelic for 20% off. Man, if that didn't take a sharp turn. That's right, baby. We still got to survive in this capitalist economy. And, uh, you know, why not? Why not get a pair of sheath underwear? It's, uh, it's fantastic. And, and really, uh, it's, it's, it's not this like massive company. I know the guy, he's, he's a wonderful guy. He, he's a podcast fan and he saw a problem with, uh, with underwear and he's like, Hey, I got a solution for it. So, you know, while we're in this sort of, you know, dominant, uh, uh, economic paradigm, might as well, uh, support the show that you love. If it is this show indeed, because, and if you need underwear and they're the most comfortable, they're really comfortable. I mean, I don't know if they're the most comfortable comfortable that would be a lie but they're certainly they're certainly the most comfortable pair of underwear that I've worn so it's like here I am talking about uh you know underwear it's like how did we get here but it's a crucial part because you know as we're you don't want to be coming together in community healing and one person is sitting in a sharing circle having to you know constantly adjust their crotch and you know uh things like things of that nature so, you know, you get a pair of sheath underwear, go to sheathunderwear.com, put in the promo code Mikeadelic, you get 20% off, super, super comfortable underwear, uh, just like moisture wicking technology, silky smooth, and it's got the pouch compartments that separate your man parts. They also make underwear for women as well. I don't know if there's pouches involved with that. I suppose if you have a large labia, they can maybe have a pouch there. I'm not really quite sure. Uh, I haven't investigated that. So Sheath does not uh, endorse that statement. That's just me going off on my own, just uh, trying to be humorous here. But uh, but anyway, really, they're, they're great underwear. It's like, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you know, I got to make a living. I got to eat. I got to I gotta do something here. Uh, so... I figure, you know, why not? It's uh, it's good. It's comfortable. They make great underwear. I love the the company, the owner, the everybody involved. 
and uh, and everybody needs underwear, right? Because you know the last thing is, that you want is to be you know drinking ayahuasca with a bunch of people, and and uh, you know you you have this pair of underwear and you you can't get it off, and it's you know next thing you know you're you're going double platinum on your mat, and you're like oh man like a I can't even wash these, and then the you know you're like but if you have sheath, it's got that moisture wicking technology, so it just easily gets that purge right wicked right off those underwears right right off and uh of course um you know that this is uh this is what we have to do this is what we have to do to survive on the planet and uh, so little mycadelic studios over here can can afford to pay their rent and uh can eat uh healthy good nutritious food and uh you know i don't know but anyway if you need underwear it's a great product sheathunderwear.com you get 20% off when you enter the code Mikeadelic, and uh, it's a win-win-win. You know, I, I get a little bit of something, you get a little bit of something, and, and, and the company gets a little bit of something. And But if you don't want to do that, whatever, you don't have to, you can go to patreon.com and you can become a, a patron for as little as a dollar a month at $5 or, or more. Other rewards start kicking in. You get access to the private Mikeadelic Inner Sanctum WhatsApp, uh, not WhatsApp, Discord. We used to be on WhatsApp, but uh, Discord chat group. I thought Discord would be better. Uh, and uh, there's bonus episodes and all kinds of things like that. So consider being a patron. If you don't want to do any of that stuff and you enjoy the show and you've never done anything to whatever, you know, show that you support the show or whatever, you could go to Apple Podcasts, just click five stars. Boom. That's it. That's good. That's good for that's good for us over here at Mikeadelic. And uh, hey, if you don't want to do that, just uh, say tell people about it. Tell your neighbors. Tell plants in your garden. I, I'll gladly take on plant listeners. Um, anybody, anybody, just you know what to do. You don't need me to tell you. You know what to do when you love things. And uh, yeah, cool. Just big shout out to all you that do all those things. Really appreciate you. Love the support. That's what keeps this little engine keeping on trucking. Whew. All right. Well, that was completely long and unnecessary, but let's get into the podcast. Okay. What, what about that? I don't think there's anything else that I need to tell you people other than uh, you're all awesome. I really love and appreciate everybody that listens to this show. If you love it, spread it far and wide. If you don't, message me. Tell me what's up. Love hearing feedback. I love hearing good, honest feedback. It, it helps make the show better. It helps me get in touch with you guys and kind of take the pulse of the of the audience, what you guys are thinking about and things like that. And when you become a, a patron, you know, I, I want to develop more of a community here. So we're going to be getting Zoom calls together. We're going to be getting more of a community discussion going on because I do really want to make this show more of a we and not just an I. And without further ado, let's get into this conversation with my good friend, Adam. Adonovich. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Person. 
perception. Is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity, the opportunity, the opportunity. anger to overthrow the machine world but here we are i think the idea of a technological utopia is a bit outdated if anything we're already uh, on the path to going enslaved by machines of loving grace <laughs> by, by machines of love and grace loving grace it's a poem um oh, i forget okay. who, uh, what being watched over machines of loving grace uh i'll send it to you later yeah that'd be great it's a really good one where are you located right now? I believe that you're in Mexico, is that right? Ah, estoy en Mexico, in Puerto Vallarta, which is this lovely uh, resort town in the Pacific coast. Oh, a resort town. Well, I mean, the, the Puerto Vallarta itself uh, is not really a resort town. It's become kind of like a hub for uh, American and Canadian expats, uh, but the towns surrounding Puerto Vallarta are more low-key and a little bit more, uh, you know, user-friendly and authentic. So I'm uh, half an hour north of Puerto Vallarta. And and yeah. that's where you have family there? Well, that's where my family is now. Uh, for the most part, uh, both my parents and my sister's family, uh, they live in Mexico City. Uh, but ever since pandemic stroke, uh, they all left the big city and they come to Puerto Vallarta to be somewhere a little bit more nicer uh, than the big Mexico City. So right. they've been here since the beginning pretty much, since March. So I joined them uh, whenever I left uh, the rainforest and came here. Yeah, mm. yeah I heard that was a, a difficult uh, process of, to get out of there. Was it difficult for you yeah, as well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You you remained there for a little while with some other people. On yes. The yeah. Yeah. I mean, whenever, whenever. I mean, Peru Peru closed their borders fairly suddenly and without previous warning. Uh, and actually, we were in the middle of a of a workshop with twenty four uh, pasajeros guests, who overnight basically became stranded in the Peruvian rainforest. Uh, so you can imagine uh, it was an adventure. Uh, we did manage to get everybody evacuated out of, out of Peru through emergency flights coordinated with the different uh, respective embassies. Uh, but some of us stayed a little bit longer, a couple of months uh, in the rainforest, yeah. Yeah, so you know how to do your own composting and everything even even more so now right like you 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 learned a lot while you were there i'm sure right well i mean i think like the the thing that i learned the most is how utterly useless and inadequate i am in situations where i need to survive on my own <laughs> and how utterly dependent we are on on labor and how that structures uh, you know within capitalist and colonial environments is really eye-opening to see how well, how 
ill-equipped most of us Westerners are to actually confront life in real, you know, in, in, in all of its reality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would see it more as like you would be more of the inspiration for that kind of a move. Like you could you could write beautiful prose and inspire people and, you know, have funny memes and, and be sort of a more... <laughs> You know the moral support. You really, you know, like lift the morale of the group, and that's needed. That's important. So, you know, moral support is needed and it's important, uh, but it's not enough when you need a source of fresh water. It's not enough when your food supply chains are in danger, and you need to figure out how you're gonna bring food from the from the world. You know, and I think that's kind of like one of the main things that has touched. Uh, pretty much everybody during this pandemic is to understand how fragile uh, the structures of our societies and Western civilizations are in general. Whether it's like if these things collapse, very few of us are actually really prepared to uh, feed ourselves or, you know, like find shelter. And, you know, like memes are fun and humor is definitely important. Uh, but it only goes so far when you're really facing existential threats, which, you know. It's kind of like, I think, like the main message that we're facing nowadays, like, hey, like everything is very fragile. Yeah. yeah. But you always seem, every time, I, I have a tendency to get sort of sucked into a vortex of getting like worked up about stuff. And I lose the natural humor that I feel like I possess, and get, you know, getting sucked into this, this vortex of, of, uh, of whatever is going on. And you always, whenever I read something that you post or, or something that you're putting out there, it always seems to have uh, that air of like, you know, that this is important, that this should be talked about, but also some levity involved into it or some ease. Even you right now, you're smiling, you're happy, like how do you do it? How do you sort of maintain that? Like, yes, everything is fucking on fire. The the earth is dying. We're collapsing. Everything's crazy, but also, I don't know, is it going to be okay? Is it all right? It, it is what it is, but yeah. What, what's your, how do you do that? What is it? It just comes natural to you. Or do you go into moments of despair to tell me a little bit about this? I think I go into moments of extreme dissociation, really. Uh, I mean, I am a anxious person. I don't know if by nature or by culture or by whatever shit happens in life and just the state of the world in particular, but I do struggle quite a bit with anxiety. Uh, and I mean, not necessarily like, you know, like full-blown panic attacks, but I'm definitely always kind of like my stress levels are always pretty high. I mean, for the most part. I don't get that though. Like it, it uh, from the outside looking at you, I don't feel that. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm becoming. Uh, I I have become really good at masking things and also like using humor both as a, um, escape of actually facing pain, which I think is one of the main. Uh, well, I mean, maybe not the one of the main purposes of humor, but humor definitely can be used as a way to evade facing pain. Uh, on one hand, on the other hand, humor, I think, um, there's a quote that I posted not long ago. I really like it. It's from Schopenhauer. Schopenhauer used to say that humor is the only divine quality in men because it is like a consciousness behind a consciousness and an ego behind an ego and that witness, which witnesses things uh, from a different perspective. Uh, one of my favorite books, actually, um, Man in Search of Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. And in that book, he speaks a lot, well, not a lot, but he speaks quite a bit about how even in the worst imaginable situation where humans were going through the worst nightmare imaginable in uh, Nazi extermination camps, 
it was those people who could still retain a spark of humor. Uh, humor being like one of the most important things that you can have when you're facing <laughs> like the worst possible that human life has to offer. And I think, in, in, you know, I mean, obviously, like we are living through times that are extremely interesting, and extremely challenging, and extremely uncertain. And I think humor can be the one redeeming quality as we navigate through this whole uh, chaotic shit show. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I try to stay balanced within my own pain and my own anxiety and my own existential fears but at the same time, uh, also taking things lightly. You know, by the end of the day, I think this is where philosophy or spirituality or religion or any of those millions of different isms and ideologies and approaches that people have developed throughout history, uh, they were, you know, like they all have the same purpose, uh, which is to allow people to face uncertainty and to face uh, the terror of being alive uh, by having some comfort, you know, there's some greater uh, picture, there's some greater story, there's some great, greater narrative, uh, and that everything that happens in this plane is sort of like, okay, you know, it gets minimized when you construct, const, contrast that to the greater picture. I mean, I personally don't find much comfort in spirituality or religion or any of those things, uh, but I do find some comfort in existentialism, for example. Right? So like, well, you know, we create meaning out of whatever situations we handle. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of trying to see, uh, I'm kind of trying to see everything that is happening through that lens in some ways. Like, I mean, this is life, this is what's happening, this is reality, this is what we're facing. I don't have any desire to bypass any of it by trying to give it some sort of spiritual meaning, uh, just to find my own ways to deal with it, you know, in a way that is, you know, to some extent adaptive, you know, that I can give my own meaning to whatever is happening. Mm. And I think humor yeah. is kind of the main one. And being kind, you know, just being kind to one another. Yeah. Well, that that's key. And and the last part of what you said, one another. You know, what I think what you posted recently and and what you talked about in the conference, I want to get to that because I feel it's such a crucial and necessary and important part of um of living life, you know, is like being with others that sort of have a shared meaning in uh, the perspective of what of approaching the world and how to sort of congregate and and laugh and and love uh, and uh, and we we don't do that in a in a vacuum and it doesn't happen in in isolation. It it can, but it's not the the full thing. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I I'm on the same page with with that uh, yeah. of, co of course. And so you were you gave a presentation at uh, the conference that was yeah. uh, online virtually, right? Yeah, this is international uh, interdisciplinary conference for psychedelic research, which is put on by the Open Foundation. They're a Dutch. Uh, a Dutch research and education group led by my friend Just. Uh, yeah, I mean it was it's a biannual or triannual conference that happens in Amsterdam this year because of obvious uh, planetary reasons. It was moved to, to an online format. Yeah. Yeah. So what were what maybe you could do a little uh, if you feel comfortable sharing some of uh, some of that presentation here with with us and and talk about sort of, you know, your research that you've been doing in the Amazon, uh, working with ayahuasca and, and interviewing people and, and writing about these experiences and what you've witnessed and observed. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, this is an extremely broad topic because it touches on, you know, like the, the deepest recesses of, uh, of modern uh, suffering, you know, which I have come to understand through my personal experience. I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, my, my, my field is mental health and the approaches that I'm mostly interested lately are ethnographic approaches and methodologies that are found in anthropology, in the social sciences mostly, uh, which tend to be very personal uh, because you bring your own subjective experience to it always. You see, it's kind of like an interpretive frame that draws from your own uh, subjective views of things. Um, so I draw a lot from my own life in how I approach uh, my research. Like every research project I've always felt is inherently um, biographical. Yeah, we're always researching whatever it is that we personally get about for whatever reason. Um, and I didn't know this uh, when I first started in getting interested in these things, but I didn't understand, uh, you know, how lonely I was and how disconnected I felt from any meaningful sense of community. And at some point when that became like a very felt reality to me, then obviously it also uh, translated to, to my research. And then I started getting that validation from listening to other people's stories. Um, since I have been down in the, in the rainforest, I have interviewed probably around 110, 120 people uh, who have just finished an ayahuasca workshop. Um, and, you know, like my interviews, whenever I interview people, I'm not, I don't really have like restructured interviews. I don't have like a script that I follow. Like I want you to answer question A, question B, question, question C. Yeah, me neither. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, like we, we, I guess you and I do very similar things in many ways. You know, you know from a more structured perspective, in anthropology is called um, a semi-structured interview because it, pretty much what I'm really interested in is to get people's experiences in their own words. I would frame some issue that I want, you know, to talk about and then I allow people to tell me whatever it is that they want to tell me using their own words, their own narratives, and then slightly I direct them to specific things if I find um, that they're particularly interesting. Um, so, you know, one of the main questions that I would oftentimes ask people is what was the most beneficial or what were uh, the most important insights that you received or that you left uh, from your ayahuasca uh, workshop, uh, and you know the first research project that I was that I was doing, I'm still doing it, is a collaboration with ICERS. Um, ICERS, for whoever uh, is not familiar with, is the International Center for Ethnobotanical uh, Education, Research, and Service, which is one of the main uh, bodies in the psychedelic scene nowadays that promotes psychedelic research um, and so on. So. Uh, we were particularly interested in the therapeutic potential that ayahuasca has in relation to uh, certain experiences of affliction, uh, specifically diagnosis, uh, not, not clinical diagnosis, but experiences that could fit in within the clinical frame of depression, anxiety, trauma, grief. Um, you know, but coming from a relatively medicalized culture, we tend to think uh, in terms of like substance, affliction, this treats this, how it's like perfect correlation yeah. between like what this substance does for a particular experience. So, you know, I, I would ask things like, how do you think ayahuasca is helping you with your anxiety? Or how do you think that ayahuasca is helping you uh, with your depression? And then people will be like, oh, you know, like this happened or that happened. 
Um, and, you know, but the more experience that I had, both interviewing people, but also working, you know, like facilitating workshops and just being in that environment, I started to see, hey, like this is, you know, like I, well, this is like pretty obvious to a lot of people and it's pretty obvious to me now, but as a researcher and as, you know, like from the framework of a researcher who is trying to figure out substance A, affliction B, what's the correlation, you know. Uh, it became evident that ayahuasca is not just ayahuasca. You know, there's a whole uh, setup of interventions. There's a social, you know, environment. There's a cultural narrative. There's a certain story that we're telling people about, you know, like, hey, like when you come to the jungle, this is what's happening. This is how things work. This is what you might experience. Um, you know, there's the environmental aspect of being in the jungle. So there's all of these different variables that have you know, something to do with ayahuasca, but it's not, I mean, ayahuasca is not an isolated, um, you know, thing, <laughs> it has context, you know, there's a narrative behind it, there's an environment behind it, there's a social group behind it, there's a group dynamics uh, behind it. So, you know, when I would ask people this question, you know, like, what were the main insights that you received during your workshop, or, you know, like, what were the main experiences that you had? Uh, with ayahuasca, uh, you know, oftentimes I would expect people would tell me about like this, you know, like mind-blowing, metaphysical, mystical experiences that they had during a ceremony, uh, or these major insights that they had about their childhood and how ayahuasca took them to re-experience this particular trauma and so on and so forth. And I mean, these things definitely are part of it. Um, but I started seeing more and more and more that for a lot of people actually uh, when they really commented on what were the most important things that they took with them from the workshop it wouldn't necessarily be like that particular insight about my childhood or that like mind-blowing mystical uh, communion with the mystery uh, but oftentimes it would be uh, things like oh like I really you know felt a lot of empathy for this other person in my workshop who, you know, was triggering me a lot because it reminded me of such and such person, you know, and through, you know, throughout the workshop, I managed, I managed to connect with this person and we found some common ground and, you know, like I managed to really create like this beautiful bond, uh, you know, that was very healing for me because, I mean, again, this, these things get, you know, more complex because oftentimes people will be projecting into other people, like persons from their past or their families. Um, but oftentimes the relational aspect can uh, and often does take precedence over other aspects of the ayahuasca experience that oftentimes we present as being of more primary importance, right? Like we have a very, very strong uh, emphasis nowadays on healing and healing because we come from very individualistic cultures and we uh, adopt frameworks of reference that we know from our Western healthcare systems, which are very individualistic, or even from kind of like this new spiritual frameworks that emerge from new age culture, where is this hyper focus on the individual and this obsession with the self. And it's always about, you know, my healing process, my personal work, you know, like my analysis of oh, whatever happened. And so on and so forth. Yeah, I want to. I want to heal all of my demons so that I can go back to the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and develop an app that's going to get everybody addicted to it. <laughs> yes. So that's that's you know one case of it for sure. You know, like the, I mean, this is one of the main strengths of capitalism. For example, capitalism has always been 
characterized in many ways by the amazing capacity that it has to really um, absorb everything that can be potentially revolutionary or disruptive and adapt it to its own needs. You know, and I think psychedelics is going through a massive stage of being completely co-opted by the same system that at some point we aim to you know, overthrow or at least change to some extent. Uh, and it's, I mean, it is discouraging in many ways. You see this more and more, not only with the medicalization of psychedelics, but also with like this new emergent culture of, you know, microdosing and all sorts of different things that are really, you know, maybe helpful uh, to some extent, but also uh, still at the service of the same culture of productivity and exploitation uh, that is, you know, making all, all of us like sick in so many different levels. Yeah. Um, yeah. So- so just want to jump in real quick and then we'll get back to what you were, what you were saying because I've been, I've been writing a lot more to try, to try and clarify my thoughts. It's pretty easy to just get on a microphone and start yapping. So one of the pieces that I'm working on right now is called What Happened to the Psychedelic Counterculture? Um, and it's just it's what you're talking about, this being subsumed by this blob, this, you know, the machine of perpetual you know, capitalist, consumerist, progress and commodifying everything that's that comes our way so yeah it's it, it's interesting it's like what well, you know if we're supposed to be entering into a new sort of way of being about about how we approach life you know how can we do that when we're restrained by the sort of you know narrow limited uh, perverse incentive structures of the of the dominant you know, game. It's just like it to me. It the trajectory just seems like we're going into like soma territory, and you know, brave new world esque kind of you know healing and healing. And it also like discounts a lot of healing that her- occurs not mediated by a capitalist, crony capitalist government apparatus type system. Um, so yeah, just I I'm I'm feeling very strongly with that uh, right now. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I don't, I don't want to derail this into a whole other thing because I wanted you to finish what you were saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, we agree on that. And, but, you know, like when, 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 I, when I speak about relational healing, um, you know, or this aspect of what ayahuasca can do for us that is deeply relational is precisely uh, about that. You know, it's kind of like allowing people to see through this indo- indoctrination that we have into hyper individualistic culture into auto exploitation uh, hopefully to see through all of these different narratives that uh, have become entrenched in the wellness industry as well you know and this is the thing that is most difficult and most pervasive because even you know as we work as facilitators or as we work as providing ayahuasca to people uh, we're still reproducing and perpetuating a lot of uh, the same narratives you know they're not really uh, different than what is being proposed by the mainstream um, apparatus, right? Saying like, okay, so each individual is still an individual, is still atomized, like your own healing process, like everything is yours, like you have to look within yourself and, you know, go through your trauma and go through your thing and, you know, like there, there, is, there are many tropes and many memes and many kind of like cliches, you know, right? that kind of like permeate the wellness industry that are also very well entrenched within kind of like psychedelic uh, communities and plant medicine communities. Uh, and, you know, it's not necessarily that they're wrong, but oftentimes we can adopt those memes or those tropes in a very critical way 
and we forget yeah, to challenge or to question where are these assumptions coming from. Uh, one of the ones that is oftentimes repeated uh, in ayahuasca circles, for example, is, uh, you know, your own, like, the best gift you can give to the world is your own personal transformation, or, you know, like, the only way you can really change the world is to change yourself, um, you know, and all sorts of different iterations of that same principle, which basically says, uh, if you really want to be of service, uh, there's no need for you to look outwards, like, don't examine too much the structures of violence or uh you know like the social how, how, how things are set up outside of yourself because everything all the answers that you need are within you and it's enough that you look deep within yourself and you figure out you know um you know so and so forth and i mean this is not wrong it has a lot of value obviously we cannot really um we cannot really be of service you know in the world unless we have to some extent worked out our own issues and work through our own shadows uh, because right, otherwise yeah. we will end up reproducing the same things that we are trying to change because we haven't really figured out our own struggles with power and so on and so forth. I mean, I mean, the history of the world is a history of, you know, failed revolutions to some extent uh, precisely because of that. Like, every, like, you know, like you have like a authoritarian tyrant regime and then you have like this other group who is like opposed to that tyranny and then like oh we're gonna change the world and we're gonna like you know and what ends up happening more often than not or usually always is that whoever were the underdogs and the revolutionaries and the freedom fighters whenever they go back to power or whenever they reach power uh, they oftentimes turn the same if not worse than what the previous oppressors were and this is what happens when all of our effort and energy is focused and geared towards the external with very uh, focused uh, turned into the internal. Yeah, so that's when one side of the spectrum. But I think what we're experiencing nowadays in, in the wellness industry and a lot of these plant medicine communities is the opposite of that, which is like everything goes inwards and it becomes kind of like this navel-gazing, self-indulgent, obsessive, uh, preoccupation with the self with extremely little awareness of social situations and how you know individual health is inherently tied up with community health and how individual health is tied up with social health and environmental health and cultural health and how how we feel or how we are and you know who we are uh, is always in relationship with all of these other layers of, of or dimensions of engagement right uh, so it's never enough just to say like, oh, like I just want to heal myself because we're never going to be healthy unless everybody else is healthy. We can never be healthy unless we live in healthy communities. We can never be fully healthy un unless we live in healthy societies. We can't really be healthy individuals if we live in extremely unhealthy cultures. I mean, you live in the U.S., I don't need to tell you about it, but when you walk in the streets of whatever American city, and you're bombarded 30,000 times a day with advertisements basically telling you how inadequate you are and how ugly and fat and dumb and how you need that service or that product or that thing. So this consumerist culture that we're so deeply seeped into uh, creates this existential vacuum, right, that prevents us from really being healthy because it's always constantly creating this need for us to fill that with something else. So how our cultures are, you know, how our media is, you know, it's very difficult to be a healthy individual if you can't escape the constant bombarding of a completely shattered, corrupt uh, apparatus of media that is basically a propaganda establishment, right? 
So all of these things are important. Environment is the easiest one, you know? Can we really expect to be healthy individuals if the water from the rivers is polluted, if all of our uh, crops and food is completely sprayed, you know, with um, chemical toxins and so on and so forth. So yeah, so, so, so the health of the individual is always intertwined with the health of the community, the health of the society, the environment, the culture. Um, you know, and if we really want to live up to that ideal of becoming agents of change for a better world that is, you know, for everybody, then it needs to be kind of like a mutual engagement in both doing our own inner work, but at the same time, not losing sight of how violent, you know, structural violence works out in the world, of how, uh, you know, what is it that we can do to actually do our part to make this world a little bit better, not only for ourselves, but for everybody else. And it seems to me, that there is a massive tendency within like this pseudo-spiritual plant medicine, wellness uh, scenes, right? To completely bypass all of the other very important things and not address reality as it is, uh, following this narrative that the only important thing is that I do my own inner work. And then people end up, you know, kind of like running away from reality and then creating these micro-communities of conscious communities in Copangan or Bali or the Sacred Valley in Peru or whatever else that is kind of like this micro neo-colonial pockets of Western privilege completely detached from the material, social, political realities of the world that, that we live in. Um, and, you know, and this one thing that I would hope ayahuasca would show people is precisely that connectedness, that interdependence, you know, like those relationships between the individual and the collective. Um, but, you know, like, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like, I think like the, the, the Western narrative is way, way, way too deeply entrenched. And a lot of us fail to get out of our own shells to really do something uh, meaningful uh, out there, which... Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, how do we have a sexy, appealing, alternative narrative, the one that you're discussing, the one that I believe in? Because, it, and I say sexy because unfortunately that seems to be how to get people's attention. You know, when I look at a lot of these sort of like new age, fucking psychedelic kind of corporate microdosing bland vanilla ugh, like companies that are out there it's like it just seems to like they seem to have this like sort of flashy kind of catchy slogany images and things and there's also this uh, approach to like hey like it's not really that weird it's for everybody and like we're like we're staying within the conventions and just like yeah. get a little bit of healing and so it's like so that seems there's a lot of people that seem to be attracted to that because of the the narrative that we've been conditioned to accept. So it's like, where, how do you see, uh, in you know, inviting people to consider an alternative narrative, one that's radically alternative? I mean, I think that's a very good question. I don't, I mean, I don't have all the answers, um, but I think. For example, that's why I brought you on here today, though, because I thought you had all the answers. I'm like, <laughs> I don't have any answers, man. I mean, you know, like I, I just have some uh, insights and so on. But um, you know, I think for me, 
this pandemic has been very illuminating. And I think for a lot of people uh, also, uh, from the perspective of exacerbating the already existing isolation and alienation and loneliness that are pervasive within Western cultures. Uh, we have been going through epidemics of loneliness uh, for a very long time. These are things that are not often spoken about. Uh, these are things that are not necessarily on the front page of newspapers, except I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was probably a year and a half ago, uh, the ex-Prime Minister of Great Britain, uh, Theresa May, she appointed a member of her, of her cabinet to be the Minister for Loneliness of the UK, which made, uh, made the news in pretty much uh, many countries. And I remember like seeing this and going like, oh, like, this is really funny. Like, you know, like what kind of title is a Minister for Loneliness? Uh, but when you look at the statistics and you see, uh, you know, like the numbers of people who feel extremely alienated and lonely, in most Western cultures, I mean, this is extremely uh, disconcerting and very discouraging. All Western and Westernized cultures are going through massive epidemics of loneliness and alienation, which in turn have been already shown to be major contributors to the other epidemics that are more talked about of depression and anxiety. Yeah, we still are very steeped into this biomedical model, particularly when it comes to biological psychiatry. Uh, we're still very steeped into this model, whereas if a person comes to the doctor and they say like, hey, like I'm really feeling you know, down and sad and it's been like this for a while. And the narrative pretty much is still, uh, listen, there's something wrong with your brain. Your neurotransmitter levels are lower than they should be. There's, you know, whatever, whatever is happening there. Uh, we're gonna solve basically because you're you're defective. You know your brain is defective. There's a structural issue with your neural pathways. We're gonna give you this drug that's going to elevate and regulate you know different levels of serotonin or dopamine and so on, and you're gonna feel better. Uh, and the narrative in biological psychiatry is pretty much like that. You know, and most efforts within biological psychiatry are still focused on finding like biomarkers for like the different diagnostic constructs and you know different drugs that can be marketed for people to feel uh, better. Uh, but it is very rare if a person is feeling sad, if a person is feeling uh, down, it is very rare for, for medical professionals. I mean, it's becoming more and more common because a lot of people are kind of getting it. Uh, but it's very rare for people to question like, hey, you know, like how is your, your social support structure? Do you have people that you can uh, talk to whenever you're feeling down? I mean, do, are you doing meaningful work? I mean, are you excited by life? You know, like, these are questions that are irrelevant within the system of, you know, uh, biological chemistry and, capital, and neoliberal capitalism. Uh, because the main interest of the system is not for you to be happy, it's for you to be productive, right? So biological psychiatry kind of works hand in hand within this neoliberal productive uh, ideology. Whereas the, the main measure for you, if you're healthy or for me, if I'm healthy, is, ah, you know, is it going to work? Are they going, are they productive? Are they contributing something of value to this capitalist machinery? And as long as you're doing that, as long as you're able to wake up in the morning, take your happy pills and go to work, then, you know, that's fine. Uh, which is a very skewed uh, approach to well-being, obviously. Yeah. Right, yeah. That's um, like the famous Krishnamurti quote. It's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Yeah. 
And this is one of the things, for example, that I that really struck me about working with Shipibo healers. And you know, we go a little bit into Amazonian, um, you know, culture and so on. But you know, we, within within our workshops that we do, there's always these personal consultations. Whereas there will be in the beginning of the workshop, there will be a meeting between the facilitator, the Shipibo Onaya, right, the Shipibo healers, uh, and the person who is coming to the retreat. Uh, and you know there's always this disparity between the narratives of distress that people express and how they are interpreted or understood according to different frameworks of understanding, right? So the person comes to the rainforest and they have been diagnosed with depression or maybe they just have like a faint idea that they've been depressed for a while. Uh, either way, they have already absorbed and adopted this label and say like, hey, like my name is Adam, I'm an anxious person or I suffer from like this particular anxiety disorder or depression or so on and so forth. So they come to the, they come to the consultation and they express that out loud. It's like, I, yeah, like, you know, my name is Adam and I suffer from depression. Uh, you know, how do you translate that to, to Shipibo indigenous people? You know, like, okay, so we say like, hey, like this person uh, is saying that they are depressed and within our culture, depression is a diagnostic construct. It's a label that we give to people when they're sad for a very long time, yeah? And this person believes that that sadness originates that he doesn't have enough molecules in their brains. Now you tell that to a Shipibo person and they look at you, uh, <laughs> you know, with this look of the amusement, right? Like, oh, what does it mean they don't have enough molecules in their brains, right? So after many attempts to explain depression to Shipibo people or to understand anxiety to Shipibo people, uh, we came to an understanding, right? So for uh, for Shipibo people, you know, it would be different. Like, oh, like, you know, like this person is feeling very sad. This So depression gets translated, understood as like that person has been sad for a very long time, right? Uh, you know, like indigenous people, different cultures in general, more traditional cultures around the world, uh, have a much less marked propensity to medicalize human emotions or to pathologize, you know, human experiences, uh, which we do all the time. You know, if a person is sad for a very long time, that's like very disruptive. Like we don't want to deal with a person that is, you know, like, okay, go take some pills, come back to us, right? Um, for the Shipibo, that doesn't make sense. Like depression is, you know, like sadness is not pathologized. Sadness is, it, you know, it's like, Okay, so, you know, let's find a way that we can help this person move that sadness to their being so they can feel joy again, or that at least they can come to terms with the sadness in a way that is healthier and it's not stuck in their bodies, right? Um, so, you know, or anxiety is a similar thing. Like, you know, try to explain what does it mean for a person to be anxious, uh, you know, to a Shipibo healer. You know, what is anxiety? It's like this constant preoccupation with with the future right like this constant worry about hypothetical imagined future scenarios uh this completely irrational neurotic somatic very somatic you know it's felt in the chest felt in the belly uh what is basically worry so for the shipibo you know the best the best approximation that we've managed to find to what anxiety is is like this person has many worries in their heart now the interesting thing and the most important thing is that there's a radically different approach of how you treat these things depending on the narrative. You know, if a person is experiencing a lot of worries in their heart, or if, a, if a person is chronically sad, right, what do you do, right? So 
And this is where community, for example, is extremely important. You know, for many traditional communities in, many, in most parts of the world, really, that still lives much more collective, cohesive community lives, the first most important intervention is always going to be social. Yeah, it's always going to be like, oh, you know, like Mike has been going through a rough time. Let's all go to his house. You know, somebody's going to be cooking for you to make sure that you're eating. Somebody's going to be doing your laundry to make sure that you're, you know, wearing clean clothes. Somebody's always going to be there with you. There's usually going to be three or four like older, uh, you know, mother figures to tend to your needs. Like they're going to like your community is going to do whatever they have in their power to make sure that you're well taken care of as you go through this phase. Yeah. So you can actually not lose your place in your community. Like, Hey, you know, like, you know, like we're here for you. It doesn't matter if you're sad for one week or two weeks or three weeks, you know, you're still part of us. We love you. We're going to make sure that you're as comfortable and taken care of as possible as you go through this episode. Yeah, but we have completely lost that dimension of communal caretaking in most Western, extremely individualistic, productive societies. First of all, nobody has the time to do that because everybody is engaged in this constant production process. Yeah, like everybody's chasing their tail just to pay rent. So, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to quit your job so you can go and take care of your friend for two weeks? It's inimaginable, right? These are one of the main aspects of community life is that there is that structure of support that things don't have to be uh, externalized or professionalized you know like in the west we have this idea that if you're struggling with your mental health you need to pay somebody external to go and tell them your life so you have somebody to listen to you and maybe you know provide some input or mirror some things that you say uh, you know, we call these people psychiatrists or psychologists or therapists, and it's become so institutionalized that we don't even notice how ridiculous that is. You know, like, how bizarre is it that you're struggling because you're sad or you have a lot of worries in your heart because you can't pay rent or because you're going to be evicted or because whatever reason it is that is... And you have to go to a stranger to tell them your woes so they can whole space for you, you know, like in most of the world and for 99% of human history, those roles haven't been specialized. They haven't been externalized. Those are roles that are taken care of by the community. You're feeling bad. There's people within your community that are not going to charge you money for sitting with you as you tell them why you're worried or why you're sad or why you're stressed or why you're anxious, you know, but this economy of extreme productivity has derived this whole other sub-economy of, um, you know, like healthcare services, which is completely dysfunctional. And I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm shooting myself in the leg because I'm also, you know, um, in it. I mean, I, I do have clients, I see people, uh, I go through processes with people, but I'm also like extremely aware that my goal as a mental healthcare practitioner and researcher is to make my role obsolete like I don't want to be you know like seeing people through zoom from across the world just to listen to their problems so they can feel better I want them to find a structure of support within their own communities so that they won't need me that I would be obsolete and hopefully that should be the goal of any mental health practitioner it's like hey like it's not about you know putting this band-aid on the anxiety of that person the sadness of the person that they feel hurt by a stranger I mean how can we help that person or how can we help 
you know, rebuild our communities to the extent that we actually feel supported by our own peers, you know. And I mean, we're very far from it, most of us. It's just, you know, the way that we live, the way that our societies and our economies, our structure just makes it, you know, more difficult and more difficult and more difficult for us to really be connected in the sense that we need to be connected with each other to be healthy. So there's no wonder that we're all feeling alienated and lonely and anxious and stressed because the most important dimension of, or one of the most important dimensions of being human, which are extremely social animals, is the community. And in the last decades, uh, you know, like everything has been set in place in our cultures and, and ideologies to completely dismantle all of the social bonds that give meaning to our lives in terms of community and family and society. Like everything is geared towards eroding more and more and more and more that connectedness between people. Because by the end of the day, you know, as you isolate and atomize individuals, uh, then people are much more susceptible really to fall into the traps of whatever cultural product is being offered, which in this case is consumerism, for example. Yeah, yeah. or yeah. whatever p- potentially dangerous conspiracy type narrative, um, which is what we see happening right now that has always been there, but really also kind of taken off and had more of a front seat notice with the, with the pandemic or front seat, uh, front seat with the pandemic. And um, that, totally. that can be very dangerous too, because you, now all of a sudden you have people engaged in this sort of, you know, mimetic narrative tribal warfare uh, sitting in their homes, isolated, no, and how important is also the physical presence of other people too, just to, to feel the, the reverberations of other people's speaking and their sounds and smell and be in, in an environment like that. Uh, you know, Absolutely. so, so yeah, it's like, it's, it, it's, it's, it's very uh, troubling. And I, and I thought maybe, oh, maybe this pandemic will start giving people insight into new ways of, of, of organizing into groups of, of uh, cooperatives and collectives that can sort of detach in, in, in almost like a civil disobedience kind of manner to, to form sort of new structures. That to me seems like the biggest mind fuck of all. It's like, well, we keep trying to like save ourselves and heal ourselves, but it's always contained within the sort of boundaries and borders of approved you know, behavior and thought and, and, and action uh, and values and ideology. So it's like, you know, you, you escape from drowning and then you make it past the water, but now you're in a chamber of, of gas, of poisonous gas. And you're like, oh, Jesus, like, you know, how do I get past that? And then you're in a realm of fire or whatever. So it's like, it, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, what is, like, I feel like there needs to be a, a total disruption to mainly the, the the economic system, right? Because that that's the main dominant mode that requires people to, to conform to it. And that's the main dominant environmental structure that's producing a lot of depression and anxiety, I would argue. Like, do you, do you think that that's true? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of good things happening uh yeah within the within within the whole you know kind of like shit show that is that is around us uh i have seen and witnessed and participated in many really beautiful initiatives where people really come together to you know like co-create it's kind of like a very more of a grassroots bottom up 
Elisha. Yeah. All right. We got a. We got a. We got a freeze. All right. Now you're back. Okay. Top down. Uh, top down uh, grassroots yeah. effort. Yeah. Bottom up. Yeah. Like like really like people people self organizing and saying like, hey like you know like this is happening even if it's just like very small scale like you know uh, let's make sure that and you know like here here where I am in Puerto Vallarta uh, this is a tourist town this is a town that lives off tourism. Yeah, so for the first few months of the of the pandemic, where Mexicans uh, still gave a fuck about social restrictions and so on, this town was pretty dead. And, you know, like, that's the main income of a whole majority of the population here. So there was, a, you know, there were many initiatives of many of the local members of the community, you know, like, like, like restaurateurs and people that were into catering. And many of the hotels in the area were like, hey, like, you know, like, we're going to we're going to keep working and, you know, we're, we're not going to be catering to, to guests. We're, we're going to be feeding, you know, our employees. We're going to be like feeding the families of the people uh, who, you know, are out of work and they cannot uh, provide for themselves. So there has been a lot of really beautiful engagements where you can really see like that spark of like that spark of like the, the, the beauty, like the innate beauty of the human nature, which, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a fervent humanist. Uh, I'm an optimist in that sense. Mm-hmm. Like I think, even though I do fall sometimes into some sort of uh, cynicism or existential whatever, but you know, by the end of the day, I, I, I'm a fervent believer uh, in, in in goodness you know, of people. I think that the human soul and human nature is inherently uh, kind and giving, and we do have that instinct to take care of each other. And then it is in challenging times where you know we have the capacity to really rise above our own limitations and say like, hey, like you know, like we're here for each other. And I have seen many initiatives like that and participated in some of those, and it's very encouraging, you know. But what you're mentioning is also true, like you know, as people become more and more isolated, and as the you know, like this epistemic chaos becomes more and more entrenched and people are having more and more trouble uh, engaging in sense-making, it becomes easier and easier and easier for people with uh, different agendas to really manipulate and get into the minds of those people who are feeling isolated or alienated or completely out of touch, you know, with, you know, whatever is happening. And uh, this is something that is extremely relevant and very, very, very frightening. I mean, the rise of, you know, QAnon and all sort of different conspiranoiac uh, calls. Um, and really, I mean, for me, the epistemic clusterfuck that all of this has created. And, you know, like, it's difficult to really address people in that level of like, hey, I mean, do you realize that these are shitty beliefs? I mean, do you realize that whatever it is that you're buying is a manufactured, prefabricated ideology and that you're just falling prey to this very specific propaganda machinery? Uh, Because we have been for many, many, many years being prepared, you know, to this particular thing through the corrosion and erosion and corruption of every single possible um, channel of communication. I mean, people just don't trust anything anymore. You know, and this is a this is a tactic that has been set up in place by governments, uh, documented uh, on purpose to create epistemic chaos on people. 
this is one of the main tactics that have been used by the Russians for many years. Now Trump has adopted that in recent years. This is, I mean, this is nothing new. Just people are not aware of how easy it is to manipulate masses through these tactics of epistemic uh, murkiness. Yeah, and you know, and, and this is like extremely discouraging when it comes to psychedelic communities and plant medicine communities. Uh, because I would hope that one of the main things that people would get from these experiences is particularly exactly that uh, epistemic humility. Mm. You know, that, that ability to say, you know, like maybe everything that I believe that up, up until now uh, is wrong, but that doesn't mean that anything from now on is right. You know, like, like just like staying in that state of radical uncertainty, you know, feeling comfortable with those paradoxes of saying like, you know, like really that layer of epistemic inquiry of like, I mean, epistemology uh, for those listeners who are not as uh, trained in academic language or philosophical lingo, epistemology is basically, you know, a classic field within philosophy that deals with knowledge. How do we know what we know? How do we make sense of the world? How do, how do we know that the information that we get uh, from ourselves, from the world around us is valid or how can we, uh, you know, how, how, how to think about what we think. <laughs> um, so, you know, like basic epistemic questions would be like, you know, like which, which uh, channels of knowledge or which channels of information are valid? You know, how do I, how can I, how can I, validate my insights or my you know my ideas or my opinions and so on and so forth and you know for the most part what i found is that psychedelics can have a very strong power in create or in planting that seed of doubt in the minds of people you know like hey maybe everything that i think that i know everything everything that i cherish is just true and you know maybe it's not you know like maybe i've been fallen prey to a propaganda machinery of you know this one or the other one or you know uh, so it is discouraging to some extent to see a lot of my peers and a lot of people within these communities uh of you know it's like a, i mean community is also like a very loose word in this in this regard because there isn't such a thing as community it's just you know loosely affiliated people with similar interests right uh, community it's, it's just you know, kind of like a euphemism that is not really helpful. And it's, you know, but people that have been years, you know, in this world of plant medicine, people that have been years in, um, you know, psychedelic communities, and they're still falling prey to believing what they think. You know, it is like uh, Robert Anton Wilson is one of my favorite thinkers, and me too. He, yeah. he developed this model that I really like, which I mean, he calls it uh, multi-model agnosticism. Right, which is basically like, hey, like you know, don't believe everything you think. Just you know, like question your assumptions, question everything. You know, your opinions. You know, every every piece of information that comes through. Like, uh, you know, this just it's just like a clusterfuck of epistemic chaos, like this murkiness of like, how do we know what we know? How are we making sense of the world around us? Who are we listening to? Who is telling the truth? And particularly both with QAnon and, you know, with the clusterfuck of coronavirus, which is also like an issue in itself, you know, like, I mean, the majority of people uh, have very little trust in institutions. So it's no surprise that the majority of people are like, we don't believe the official narrative, which, you know, and, and, and rightfully so, you know, like there's a lot of holes in it. 
you know, but there, there are some or many holes in official narratives. It doesn't mean that everything is false. It doesn't mean that there's some ulterior motives by some shadowy elite to implant chips or, you know, 5G antennas or whatnot. I mean, it's kind of like this very, very, very complex uh, interaction between different uh, ways of making sense of things. And we're just, you know, we're in the midst of that chaos. I don't, like, it's been extremely interesting, but also very concerning to see uh, how people react to this uncertainty, to this, you know, uh, epistemic uh, murkiness. Yeah. Well, what you just said is really, uh, really cool because I had always thought in those, in, in those realms as well. Like, um, for example, you know, you, let's just use like 9-11 for an example, right? So like the, there's like, okay, so it was an inside job. It was all done, you know, by in this way, there's even more extreme narratives that are like planes never hit the building. There were holograms and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff. But let's just say, let's just say that that was true. So what would be the result of that? Well, probably something similar to like what we've seen play out. Now, let's just say that that's totally not true. And the official narrative is exactly what happened. Well, what have we seen from that yeah. official narrative? The same exact thing that would play out. So it's like, no matter what, it seems like it's almost it's almost like it's irrelevant. But I, I don't want to say that it's irrelevant not to know what's really going on. But I also think that no one is capable of knowing what's really going on because it's so complex. But also, it's just that to me, the most concerning thing is how we respond, how we react, and the, the measures that we take and what we do. And like you said before, sort of exacerbating or uh, expediting this already isolated society to go further into isolation and dependency and uh, individualism and, and, and warring with each other. Because who stands the most to gain from that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, divide and conquer is kind of, you know, the first, the first uh, point in any playbook of how to dominate people. Yeah. I mean, just to, be, just to make it clear, you know, like I'm not, I'm not a radical skeptic when it comes to like conspiracy theories. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that people are not aware of. I mean, 9-11 for one is something that I never, um, you know, like I, I, I mean, again, like, I don't know if I would go as far as like being a truther as it happened, you know, 20 years ago, but I mean, that the official narrative is definitely not convincing, you know, like these are things that are undeniable, you know, like, uh, you know, like, it's, it's, it's just as ridiculous in my eyes to be in a position where you say like, oh, like, you know, Bush brought down the towers and like everything is a fabrication and like, you know, like this A, B, C, D, E, uh, as saying like, oh yeah, like everything that the government is saying is true and like all that. I mean, both positions are kind of like ridiculous in that sense. I think there is a lot of truth to, uh, you know, just the understanding that, you know, we can't really trust the government, that's for sure. Like the official narratives are always have ulterior motives um you know but it's kind of like for a lot of people once they lose trust in the official narrative or once they lose trust in institutions then uh, it sees it's kind of like a very slippery slope you know how far are you going to go down that rabbit hole where suddenly uh you know like in a matter of days of youtube videos people are convinced that the world world is being ruled by reptilian overlords and uh, shape-shifting uh, queens and kings, you know, like it's a very, very slippery slope. Well, yeah, and it's like how useful is that really? You know, it's like, okay, so so 
we could say that the world is being run by reptilian overlords in the sense that they're using the reptilian part of their brain to go about, you know, you know, it's just like there, there, there is a sort of different uh, ethos or ideology that seems to be uh, being pushed forward. So in a sense that there is some sort of like metaphorical truth to that or something, but, but it's also like, how useful is it to say like one of my things with the flat earth people, right? It's like, who cares? What's the incentive? Like we're here. There's things happening here. Why are we getting all worked up? But as you were saying, a lot of these things are sort of infiltrated psyop, you know, um, things to sort of get people distracted, go down those rabbit holes because those people are already predisposed to the sort of things that happen by being alienated and isolated. So it's like, all right, get them involved in something and they'll start warring with somebody else about that and that'll create more chaos. So, you know, whatever. And it's like, really, there's, there's some simple things that we can all sort of come together on. But, but again, it's like, it's not sexy to be talking about like this, you know, we have to come to community and we have to heal together. And like, you know, we have to question our model of things. And you say that to some people and they're just like, huh, what? No, like I want, I want, I want, the comforts that I've been accustomed to by this world, because I would argue that most people probably aren't feeling the boot of oppression on their neck so severely. Yeah. So it's like the, 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 the fire of resistance and rebellion is just like, well, who cares? What's the point? Absolutely. You know, this, this, this reminds me of something uh, a few years ago. I remember reading this article by uh, Nick Bostrom. He's a physicist. Yeah. Computer science. Super, in, super intelligence. Yeah. I love Nick Bostrom. But he, he speaks about uh, the simulation argument. And basically, mm -hmm. like, bottom line says, like, you know, from a mathematical perspective, it is 99.9% .9 likely that, you know, we are, we are a simulation uh, coded or written by a higher level uh, civilization. And he says, like, yeah. it is extremely likely that that's how life propagates, you know, in this multiverse. It's basically, like, you know, like higher civilizations code a simulation. It says basically like if you can imagine the ancestor the simulation, yeah. Yeah. Like if if you if you look at virtual reality games nowadays as opposed to twenty years ago, yeah. And you see, I mean, what kids are playing nowadays in the computers, and you mean you can imagine that in a few years that technology is going to advance to the point where a virtual reality game is going to be virtually indistinguishable from real life. Yeah. Uh, just the level of technological sophistication that we will achieve will render virtual reality indistinguishable from real life. And he says, if that is true, yeah, then it follows that it is extremely likely that we in turn are that virtual reality from a higher level civilization. And then it's kind of like this endless regression of civilizations creating so forth. But the really interesting question that he asks afterwards, I mean, he says like what you said, like, even if we knew for sure, I mean, even if like some crazy genius computer scientist like managed to crack the code of the matrix and see through like these layers of, you know, green, whatever, and say like, hey, like, yeah, we are a simulation. I mean, here's the proof. He says like, even if we knew 100% for sure that we were a simulation, uh, would that change anything? You know, like the real questions are not metaphysical or ontological. The real questions are ethical and moral. You know, would you behave any differently if you knew that you were just computer code? I mean, would you care less for your partner or your family? Would you engage differently when a puppy came to you, like all looking for, you know, would you enjoy less, you know, your cheeseburger? I mean, all of these things are 
you know, and, and, and the truth is that we weren't, you know, even if we knew for sure that we weren't other than the imagination of a crazy computer scientist, I mean, we would probably still, I mean, that wouldn't be a license for us to be assholes to each other. That wouldn't be, a, oh, we're just a simulation, so let's just go into the street with baseball bats and shit the living, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't. For most of yeah. Uh, you know, and I think like, you know, that's, that's the thing, like, you know, like what are the practical implications of all of these things? And, you know, the answer, I think for me, it's always been very clear, like, uh, you know, like whether we are being ruled by reptilian overlords or manipulated by Russian foreign media or just immersed into a, you know, chaotic dream of bad information, uh, you know, what is real for us? What are the things that are ultimately very, very real? And the bottom line is that the only things that are ultimately real for us are our connections to each other. You know, how we feel uh, towards each other, the love that we feel for family, the love that we feel for friends, our pets, our loved ones. I mean, these are the things that are unalienable. Yeah, like, um, they're just not going to change, you know, and that, and given that, that really the only things that we take with us or the only thing that keep us moving forward are, you know, like that sense of connectedness to our kin, to our friends, you know, to our, you know, global um, family of sentient beings, then those are the things like, okay, so it doesn't really matter what the ultimate reality is. It doesn't really matter who the fuck brought down the towers or who is manipulating the CDC to give us all of this you know, conflicting information about using mass, not using mass. By the end of the day, what matters is how we engage with each other. Yeah, like are we really engaged in nurturing and taking care of our relationships, of being kind to each other, of, you know, supporting each other. And I think this is kind of like the antidote for all of those different things that we've been talking about. You know, that loneliness, that alienation, that extreme, you know, sense of disconnection that we're feeling. And, you know, particularly in Western cultures, I mean, you see... Uh, something that I noticed, this, I don't know if this is very relevant, but I'm just going to go <laughs> again, like, uh, you know, like I started watching porn when I was 13. And I remember when I was 13, uh, there was porn and then there was hardcore porn. And there were like all of these different categories, whatever made me like six or seven different categories. Uh, research purposes nowadays, when <laughs> I did, you know, there's, there's there, not only there's like 40 different hardcore you know not not only like the, the soft porn nowadays is what used to be like the most hardcore porn you can imagine three years ago but the most the most uh popular and most sought after category in pornography nowadays is incest yeah like uh mother father really wow i didn't know that yeah like it's it, it's insane like it's it's very very big but like what most porn videos nowadays are, are like you know, like I went into my stepsister's room or, you know, like my, my stepmother was or whatever. Uh, but, you know, porn is a manifestation of the fantasies that people have. Why is it so entrenched in the American mind? Yeah. This idea of the broken family. Yeah. Like this rupture of the nuclear family. Yeah. Like, and, and this is something that I, you know, like always also like witnessed in, 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 in ayahuasca workshops or just like with people that I've known, like I get to know like a lot of people from all over the world. And there is something very specific about the American, the North American psyche that is extremely wounded when it comes to relations. Yeah. Like, 
a big percentage, if not the majority of uh, North American people that I know come from broken families. It is insane, you know, like the dissolution of the most important of all nuclear bonds, which is, you know, like father, mother, sister, brother. I mean, it's, uh, you know, like the, 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 the backbone of any healthy individual is how well embedded they are within their immediate family nucleus. And, you know, for most North American people, uh, these are extremely damaged, uh, broken uh, bonds. And, you know, that translates into what it is that people fantasize about because of the power relationships between those things. I mean, it's a tangent, but... No, it's uh, good, know, like yeah. The point is, yeah, like, 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 like just that lack of connectedness between people that lack of a sense of belonging not even about a wider community not even about a tribe or you know a society that can really feel like they have your back but the most immediate of all which is like the nuclear family yeah so this is this is i mean is it any is there any wonder that we're going through all of these extreme epidemics of alienation, depression, anxiety, loneliness, where we don't feel even slightly safe within the most immediate nest that we can think of, you know, which is our own, our own family. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that, and that, that, even that act is such an individualistic, you know, uh, act as well you know to be like going on to pornography websites and you know sitting there and watching things for hours on end or whatever it is for a lot of people and just feeling like you get your needs met maybe immediately but there's this empty shallow sort of you know feeling afterwards they could never really live up to the real thing and then it's like what the hell are you watching anyway you know daddy comes home early from work or something and finds daughter and friends playing video games in their living room. And then it turns into this thing, this like sexual, you know, fantasy type thing. But it, is it, is it also because like, cause it's weird. It's like, it's almost like we live in a, a repressed society, but we also live in a hypersexualized society at the same time. So it's yeah. like maybe this sort of, um, you know, outward, uh, container of of suppression and uh, repression and shame and taboo and this stuff sort of pushes and and creates this symptom of of hyper sexualized distorted fantasies and things like that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this comes from the same from the same unmet needs. You know, like the proliferation of pornography. I mean, pornography is free for a reason. You know, like it's not casual that you have free access to. You know, like if a person goes on Pornhub, there's like literally terabytes upon terabytes upon terabytes of any possible uh, genre they can ever dream of, and it's not. I don't remember who was it. Probably uh, Jaron Lanier or some of these like uh, virtual theories. They said like. If something is being uh, given to you for free, then you are the product. Yeah? yeah. And I think with pornography, it functions like that. I mean, it would take it would take probably many episodes of your pod uh, to really dismantle the damage that pornography has done on the Western psyche, and what are the needs that it's covering up for. But I, you know, like just from a very, very, very introductory level, I think. 
you know, that comes from the same basic human need for connection. You know, what is it that we are craving the most? And that is intimacy, authenticity. You know, people are not sexual, sexually depraved as a rule, uh, but we use a lot of sex. I mean, sexuality has become kind of like this standby, this surrogate for authentic human connections. Yeah, so as you say, like on one hand, we have like this extremely puritanistic, moralistic view of sexuality that comes down from like all this Protestant lineage of Judeo-Christian mindfuckery that has kind of, you know, some of the building blocks of Western civilization, but at the same time, you know, consumer culture and all of this, you know, abundance of things that kind of like puts sexuality in this very ambiguous place where at the same time is hyper available, but at the same time also like uh, hyper uh, pathologized or tabooed. You know, I mean, the fact that there's such a uh, ridiculous and widespread uh, discourse of like, hey, are women allowed to breastfeed in public? I mean, the fact that the sexualization of a breast takes precedence over the feeding of a newborn baby uh, is in itself ridiculous. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a symptom of a deeply dysfunctional uh, view, not only of the human body, but about, you know, like sexuality in general. And I think. Uh, you know, in a general sense, the reason why pornography is... Op- I, I don't know if you know this, but a few years ago, uh, I don't remember which university wanted to do like the most comprehensive study ever on the effect that pornography had on the male developing brain. Uh, so basically, they wanted to do this long-term study comparing the developing brains of, of male teenagers who were growing up watching pornography versus people who weren't uh, watching pornography as they were growing up to really see structural changes in the brain. Uh, and the results of the study were that they couldn't do it. They didn't do the study because they weren't able to find a control group. They weren't able to find enough males who didn't grow up watching pornography regularly. Wow. Yeah. So that just gives you a taste of the pervasiveness of how this industry is completely taking over not only our view of sexuality, but also how our brains form throughout the formative years and how we grow up, um, how our brains eventually turn out as adults, adult males, uh, as a result of basically being fed pornography since uh, we were kids. Yeah. Uh, but, by, but, you know, by the end of the day, again, like this is covering up for a basic, for a very basic human need, which is this need for a connection. It's just putting the dopamine and the oxytocin in the wrong impulses, yeah, and conditioning our uh, young developing brains into firing things uh, in certain situations and not the ones that really promote that closeness, that intimacy, that real human, you know, uh, authentic connection, which is, by the way, what we're craving, you know. Even if it's unconscious, even if most people are not aware of it, even like the most basic, you know, uh, macho type, uh, you know, like by the end of the day, what they're really, really craving is not just another sexual conquest or another, you know, uh, fucking another woman. I mean, but you know, they, what everybody is craving is, is, is like an authentic, intimate human connection. I think like most of us are just unaware of it. So we use whatever surrogate we are given as an outlet. So we, you know, I mean, you jack off and you forget about it for a while. I mean, it doesn't bother you at least until the day after. Uh, I mean, then it does, it does leave you feeling much more empty than you came with. And that's not only physiologically, that's also because your actual needs are not being met. 
you know what you what happens after you ejaculate is not that you're you know now feeling fulfilled and connected and you know gazing into each other's eyes and sharing like this beautiful human moment it's just like this further sense of isolation and alienation and disconnection which has become you know life for a lot of people like we don't know something else right wow yeah but again the same underlying symptom of disconnection from each other like this constant erosion of our connectedness to each other like this ongoing uh, never-ending strive to isolate separate and atomize and individualize our experiences into like hey like you know we glorify the individual this is something that is also extremely um dangerous and you see this a lot in plant medicine communities you see this a lot in psychedelic scenes you know like the the glorification of the individual you know the glorification of personal responsibility the glorification of uh, personal accountability and so on. i mean these things are important but they're just a very small part of a much bigger story uh, which in its essence uh, should be relational you know we are not atomized we're not i mean the individual is an abstraction it's like if you think about your body, yeah, I mean, you have cells, individual cells. So, yeah, I mean, you can, cons- you can think about your body as like, oh, like, you know, there's this tiny individual cell, you know, there's other individual cells, but, you know, like cells don't function uh, on their own. They're kind of part of organs, they're part of different tissues. They have a function within a much larger organism that needs to be understood in this holistic aspect to really make sense. What happens when one cell decides to go awry and do their own thing, you know, for whatever reason? that's when we get cancer. I mean, cancer is precisely that, like, you know, like that physical bodily manifestation of cancer is individualism in the cellular level taking to its last consequences. It's like when cells decide, hey, like we're not going to cooperate, we're not going to participate in this holistic vision of the human body, we're just going to do whatever it is that we want just to reproduce uh, without any concern for our environment, which is going to consume as many resources in this environment, this immediate nexus of whatever we are embedded, and we're just going to grow uncontrollably until we completely take over the whole organism. So, you know, I mean, this is kind of like a far-fetched idea, maybe, but making that parallel between like the individual process of how cells mutate and create uh, cancerous growth in our bodies to uh, the planetary predicament that we're on. Um, you know, I mean, whoever wants to understand reality as a holotropic or holograph as a holographic universe where every layer of reality refracts and represents like the other layers of reality I mean, the connection is pretty clear you know like the epidemic like the rampant epidemics of cancer that we're experiencing too within western societies might be uh you know like a lower level manifestation of a higher level process where humans are completely reproducing that same uh process in a planetary level completely taking over uh, the whole habitat that we share with uh, countless other organisms. Mm. So, you know, like that relational aspect, I think, is the crucial one if we really want to transcend whatever shitty situation we find ourselves, both in the planetary predicament of humanity as a whole, but also like in the rampant epidemics of loneliness, alienation, anxiety, depression, I think the key to all of those things is to escape that mindset of like extreme alienation, individualistic thinking, and start seeing how we really embed ourselves better and better within those other layers of interconnected relationships. You know, starting from the bottom up, you know, like our families, our societies, communities, uh, and environments. Yeah. 
It's tricky. Yeah. How do we do that? We don't have any templates for it. Well, are you engaging in any kind of, are you, are you living like that right now? I mean, do you feel like, you know, do you, how do you feel with this way of being right now? I mean, I, I, I know early on in the pandemic when it was like, all right, we have to be locked down and we have to be separated. Like there was, it was, there was more separation. And then as things sort of, you know, I've been see, I've been hanging out with people. I've been getting together with people, but, um, yeah, I, I went to a concert recently and it was a socially distanced concert. And, you know, my friends and I were just very excited to go to a show and see this band that we all love. And <clears throat> it was great. It was in this beautiful area in the mountains and near water. But there was still there was still this feeling inside of me like, oh, I want to I want to I want this to be the full thing. Like I want the audience to be packed and shoulder to shoulder and feeling people's sweat and their breath and like the whole, you know, the energy that the the band gets from the audience and the audience gives to the band. And, and I had just had this like moment of terror of like, oh my God, like we're going to, this is the world from now on. We're going to be living like this. It's crazy. So there's efforts to sort of like connect, but it's uh but it's like, we haven't really fully connected. Like we need hugs. We need love. Yeah. We need those things. We need music and we need community so it's like how do we navigate that in this time where we're told that being close to other people could be dangerous and that we have to mask up and things like that it's like where i'm trying to navigate like the level of like what's appropriate and what's not you know yeah i mean absolutely um you know in the beginning of this conversation i told you that i feel that every research project or you know, everything that we choose to engage with our research is always autobiographical. Yeah. And at least for me, it is. You know, like, uh, when I talk about all of this alienation and individualism and egoism, and, you know, I mean, when I talk about these things, I'm not talking about something abstract. I'm talking about me. You know, like, I am lonely. I am alienated. I am yeah, isolated. speak from a place of I, Adam, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like, and and I am very, I'm very aware of it. Uh, there's, there's this quote that I like a lot is by um, uh, Gloria Steinem. She's a feminist writer and she says, uh, we write what we need to know. Uh, you know, like we, we write what we need to know. And, and for me, like this whole journey is not something abstract. It's not something that I just kind of like chose out of a list of different things. It's, it's deeply personal because I, I am that, you know, like I am alienated i am lonely uh, i feel this very deep longing for connection uh, and i have been looking for that in the wrong places in, in for many for many years in my life you know like i have gone through many phases of trying to fill that void through all sorts of different things that weren't really you know feeling that it's been a quest it's been part of my journey to really find that which solidifies that need that longing for actual real uh, connection and I haven't I don't have a lot of answers because I'm still on that journey uh, I can say it to your question um, whenever whenever the pandemic uh, hit and I was in Peru um, it became very quickly very evident that the only place for me to be in was back home with my family you know like it became uh, just there was just like this, this, this obvious knowing, like, I don't know how things are going to unfold. You know, this may be just a transient thing for two weeks or three weeks or two months and it may not. It may forever change the face of earth. It may forever alter the way that we, that we live life, you know? 
and I don't ever want to be uh, estranged or away from, from, from my sister and my niece. You know, I don't want to ever feel, I mean, I'm very close to my family, which is something that I'm very, very uh, grateful for because I know that this is not the experience of most people in the West nowadays. I mean, most people are estranged from their families or disconnected or, you know, like in, in different difficult dynamics. You know, I've been, I have the amazing good luck of, you know, coming from a very strongly, tightly knit family. We have a lot of love and affection for each other. And yet uh, for most of my adult life, I have been living away from them because that's always kind of like been my lifestyle. You know, I always been an adventurer and a seeker and I spent years traveling and I spent years in India and then in the Amazon rainforest. And, you know, I do make it a point to come and visit as often as I can. But the truth is that since I am 18, uh, I haven't been close to my family physically, affectively, emotionally. Uh, and I started seeing the effect, the effect that that has had as I grow up and I'm craving those kinds of connections. And I haven't really been able to find uh, long lasting. It seems that the more that I grow up, I mean, I had it when I was a kid. As I was growing up, I was part of a very, very strong tribe, like group of friends. Uh, middle school, high school. I grew up in Israel, which is a much more tribal kind of society where there is a sense of deep, um, you know, affinity between people for the most part. So I grew up in Israel and through middle school, through high school, through my, you know, like young adulthood, I was part of a very tightly knit, strong group of friends. And we're kind of like a tribal, you know, like everything happened around my house. Like we would meet in my, uh, in my room, which is like this, the upper room and, you know, like smoke the shishas and the nargilas and weed and drink and, you know, I was the center of this very rich, diverse group of friends that really feel that need for, for connection and affection and social connectedness. Uh, but once I left Israel and started, I started growing up and, you know, my friends started getting married and having families and like everybody starts having their lives. It seems that the more that I grow up, the harder that it gets for me to find and maintain uh, close human relationships. And this is something that hit me really hard a few years ago. It hit me like a ton of bricks, probably like three or four years ago, when I started realizing like, hey, it's been many years since I felt really, really close and connected to a new friend, you know? Like that connection that I had with my high school friends or with my army pals, like I haven't felt that in a while and I'm really, really craving that. Particularly with men, you know, it's become very hard for me to create very close, intimate relationships with men for some reason. Um, so, to kind of bring it back to where I was. Uh, so, yeah, when the, when the pandemic hit um, in the jungle and I found myself, uh, you know, like experiencing like this dread and it's like, oh, like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, the only thing that made sense for me was go back to my family. And, you know, this is what I did. And, and this has been difficult in many ways because I haven't lived with my family for 20 years or 18 years, you know, and suddenly, you know, finding myself again in this family dynamics and, you know, making space daily to cook for my parents and taking care of my dad that has had, you know, like a few uh, medical issues since I came here. And, you know, like, like being constantly engaged in this family dynamics has been very, very hard because, uh, it's just very hard, you know, it's very, very, very hard. 
Uh, but at the same time, it was clear to me that this is what I needed to do. If I wanted to keep, you know, talking about relationality and connectedness and so, I mean, where do I start? You know, I start from the place that is the most immediate for me. And the most immediate for me is my own family. So in the last few months, as I came here, it has been this process of trying to connect or reconnect in a very meaningful way uh, to my parents, to my sister, to my niece. Yeah, and it has been very beautiful in many ways. Uh, and mostly it has been very frustrating because it's taking a toll out of me. It's been emotionally challenging. I find myself unable to articulate what I want to articulate. I find myself oftentimes uh, slipping back into like these patterns of behavior that I had when I was a teenager, when it comes to my parents. Uh, this is classic quote by Randas, which everybody knows, you know, like, if you think that you are so enlightened, go and spend a week with your family. Yeah. Uh, I have yeah. spent the last three months with my family in the same living space, cooking for them daily, you know, making space to connect daily, uh, meditating with my dad in the mornings, uh, going to the beach with my mom, going to the, the pool with my mom, um, watching shows in the evenings, you know. Uh, and it has been extremely hard because it's very frustrating. It's very, very difficult for me to transcend my own patterns of communication. It's very difficult for me to transcend my own need for space, my own need for not communicating with them. Um, but at the same time, it's very clear to me that no matter how frustrating it gets or no matter how difficult it is, this is the first hurdle that I have for me to really be able to walk the walk that I talk and say like, hey, yeah, I mean, I'm craving connection, I'm craving community, I'm craving like deep intimate bonds. And as long as I'm, you know, like this is the first step is like creating that with the people that are closest to me. After I managed to do that to a satisfactory extent where there's like a clear channel of communication, where the frustration is lower to a minimum level, where I'm able to go to my mom or to my dad and say like, hey, like I really need support, you know, like asking for help for my parents is very difficult, particularly when it comes to emotional issues. You know, like my mom, she sees me, right? And she's like, hey, like you're not doing well. And I'm like, no, I'm not. You know, like I'm really stressed. It's very difficult for me to really engage in that level of authenticity and vulnerability with my own parents, you know, which is it's funny because in the last four years, I have been practicing that with strangers over and over and over. You know, at the temple, if I'm leading a workshop, I have a group of 24 people and we have a sharing circle. And I will say like, you know, the first thing that I would say is like, hey, like, you know, like this is a sharing circle and I encourage everybody to be as uh, open and vulnerable and authentic. Uh, so you can really share with us what are the things that are waiting like really heavy on your hearts, you know, your deepest fears, trauma, so on and so forth. And people respond great, you know, for the most part, people are very good at, you know, transcending their own limitations and uh, in front of a group of complete strangers becoming emotionally naked, they're really sharing things that they've never communicated to the closest people in their lives before. And it turns out it's infinitely easier to do that in that setting with a group of strangers than it is to do with actual people that are closest to our lives. For me, that's true 100%. It is so easy for me to you know become vulnerable and like speak my truth and like you know like emotionally naked in front of strangers but when it comes to my own family it, it's, it's impossible like you know how do I say these things to my mom how do I say these things to my dad you know and it shouldn't be like that I mean I don't think that it should I think that's part of the thing is like hey like how can we bring those insights that we learn in these medicine environments you know and we practice those those things in those micro environments with the people that actually matter the most to us 
Um, so that's kind of like the practice that I'm bringing with me from four years of uh, facilitating workshops and drinking medicines like hey like these things are much easier in front of a group of strangers or you know anonymous people or people that we're not necessarily emotionally invested in you know as closely as we are with their families or our closest friends but how can we adopt those same frameworks of really allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and open and authentic um, you know in this micro setting. So for me, that, that has been the main challenge and it continues to be a challenge. You know, how do I hold space for myself and my family in really being able to express, you know, vulnerabilities? So yeah, other than my family, yeah, I mean, where, I'm at, where I am now, I mean, my priority has been uh, seeking like-minded people, connected community, uh, having shared projects and so on. I mean, the pandemic is very tricky because even in Mexico, that is basically pretty open. Uh, it is still not as you know open as it would be normally. So there's a lot of people, including myself, that are still very reticent to go out uh, in public spaces. Uh, so yeah, I mean the isolation is real, but within the boundaries of what is possible for me or what I allow myself um, in this situation of social uh, distancing, then my priority has been to find like-minded people that I can co-create something that I'm really lacking in my life, which is like that real sense of kinship and community. Yeah. And this is also what I encourage in all of my clients. And this is what I encourage first and foremost in all of the guests that I, ha I have had throughout the last few years at Temple. Like, so like, hey, like your integration is going to include, uh, you know, in a very, very prominent way your capacity to create community and to build for yourselves strong support networks otherwise it's going to be very difficult in the long run yeah wow yeah i mean it's it's so, it's just so valuable too to be participating in these like you talking about that and sharing that and thank you for doing so with you know this this audience of thousands of strangers <laughs> um, but it's, it is easier it's this paradox right it's like we go out and talk about all these things and they're sort of in the abstract but we know they're not in the abstract but then when we have to practice them in interpersonal relationships and familiar relationships it's like that's where the rubber hits the road and 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 um yeah it's it's uh it's something that i definitely you know but you you sharing that took me out of the, the abstract. It, it took me out of sort of the, the bigger kind of picture things. And it really put me into, into thinking about my own family and my nieces and nephews who I haven't seen in a while. And I FaceTime them and stuff. And I want to go back to New York and I want to see them and, and how important that is and, and, and how that is something that, get, that gets lost in this machine of production and, you know, consumers. It's like, well, what about, you know, cook, cooking a meal with your family, yeah. you know, being there with your family, just, just listening to some, you know, bullshit that your mom's saying, but you love her. So you sit there and you listen to it, you know, and, and you're there with her and you take her seriously and you love, you know, and I've been practicing you, your, your upbringing very almost identical to mine as well. And I, you know, I left at 18 and, and all this stuff. And, um, but I've been practicing more, uh, immediate awareness of compassion in the moment with my family. So when I talk to them, I will say like, Hey, I just want to let you guys know, you know, that I, I really care for you and I, and I love you very much. And, and, uh, you know, I couldn't have like m most of the time when I talk to them and I remember like one of the first times I, I did that, like my dad just being like, 
okay, well, all right, take care. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm just like, dude, I'm, I'm like, I'm expressing, you know, yeah. this, 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 like, I want to share with you the, the, how grateful I am to have you both in my life and that you're still here and, you know, that I care for you and I think about you and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you and I hope you're proud of me, you know, and all this stuff. And my dad was just like, all right, well, be well. Like, and I, and I ended it with like, I love you and I love you very much. And, you know, but they're, 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 they come around more. My mom's always been like that, but my dad, uh, he'll, he'll, he's come around more since like, he'll say he loves me and stuff. But I just, I want to bring that up more so because I just feel like, uh, like you were saying at the end of the day, I mean, come on. I mean, at the beginning of the day, what's more important than the love and connection with family. And then the people that you consider to be family that are extended family as well, you know. Yeah, and this is where this is where it begins because once I mean this is my view, but once that is established, then it becomes easier to keep expanding that circle of connectedness and closeness to other people, you know, to include also like you know larger tribes and larger communities and so on. But I mean, it has to begin from 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 the bottom up, you know. Yeah. Well, thank you for participating, Brother Adam, in my tribe, vibing with my tribe to higher levels of consciousness that we here will then uh, send to the people, to the masses, to, to be a part. And they can be a part for only $12,000 a month. They can join our tribe <laughs> of sacred, the sacred brotherhood tribe. Um, I'm being a little tongue in cheek, but uh, I mean, I'm being totally tongue in cheek. <laughs> Yeah. but but no there i mean there is you know they got there's seriousness to that because it is like yeah we want to have a tribe we want to have a brotherly connection and that sort of thing but i'm i'm obviously you get what a, the joke that i'm making so um yeah. you know yeah uh cool man well dude this has been this has been awesome i i mean it's so cool that we can just uh connect and just start riffing on on things and um and you know, and then it becomes a podcast and people get to listen to it. And I think people get a lot of value out of this stuff, especially from the personal stories. Maybe we'll end on more of a, a positive note. What are you doing today? What's going on? What's, how's, what, what, what's, what's exciting in your life? And, and what, are you, what are you looking forward to right now? Yeah, I mean, great. I, I mean, I had, I had a bunch of different plans lined up for this year, which were either postponed or uh, re, uh, re, recalibrated. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm finishing my, my PhD, so I have, a, I have a doctoral dissertation to, to hand in by the end of next year. Uh, part of that is a residence that I was supposed to be doing this year uh, at the Center for Psychedelic Research in Imperial College in London, which is nowadays kind of this uh, leading institution in the scene of psychedelic research. I didn't go this year for obvious reasons, but I hope uh, that next spring I'm going to spend a few months uh, in London uh, doing that. So I have a couple of really interesting research projects that I need to uh, write up, analyze, uh, write my dissertation or finish writing my dissertation. Uh, so that's keeping me busy. And yeah, I mean, other than that, uh, I'm seeing some people for... Uh, integration and therapy uh, relationships. So at the moment, uh, this is via Zoom and some presential, so kind of like branching out into other aspects of um, accompanying different processes and caretaking and so on. Uh, yeah, and I have a few local projects going on here. I'm looking for land to build something. Uh, I'm in touch with some really good people in this area to do really amazing 
uh, projects together, but that's still preliminary, so I'm going to hold back a little bit from those things. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's really exciting, uh, promising things that are happening. But I mean, I, and again, I think um, the most important thing, and I think this is... Wait, wait, we're, break, we're breaking up. We, can, we can't freeze on the most this, important thing. So... Uh, yeah. All right. This will be, hopefully this will be the final freeze of the Zoom call, but you're yeah. saying, okay, the most important thing. The most important thing is that I think this period has been a period of pause and reflection um, and really reconsidering my priorities. Uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying like, hey, like I just took advantage of this pandemic to really advance my personal projects and like do all of these different things. Uh, that would be uh, dishonest because for the most part, this has been difficult and it has been really a process of letting go of many things and rethinking what my priorities are in life. There has been a lot of um, doing nothing. There has been a lot of frustration over doing nothing. There has been a lot of compassion over understanding like, hey, you don't have, you don't have to feel guilty about doing nothing because you are going through this. We are all going through this collective trauma and re reconfiguration of, you know, like everything that we hold uh, dear and close to ourselves. So a lot of that has been also like giving myself a lot of time to, to, to feel things out and to really stop and reconsider like, hey, like, is this really what you are supposed to be doing? What are, you, what are my priorities really? Um, yeah, and I, I found out that actually, you know, like my priorities are different. And I'm, again, as I said, like I am putting a lot of effort and time and energy into being present with my family. Uh, I have gotten much more deeply into cooking. Uh, I'm growing microgreens. Uh, I am engaged in a few mycological projects, let's say. All right, nice. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Or yeah. exchange later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like the most important has been that it's really, it's been a pause. It's been a period for reflection, for reconfiguration of priorities, for reconnecting with family, uh, for letting go of people in my life that were not aligned or that I wasn't aligned with or they weren't aligned with me in terms of like, how do I see myself growing in the future? It's been very difficult. Uh, it's been, it is, it still is. I'm still in it. Uh, but, you know, I'm always kind of keeping the head high and uh, optimistic about things unfolding. Uh, hopeful for the human race. I hope we don't go extinct because we're funny. And that has, to be, that has to be of some value, even if it's just for the humor that we bring to this cosmic, ridiculous game. I hope that we make it. Uh, it doesn't seem like it right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was but trying you know. to go for a positive note here at yeah. the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, you know, like, that, that, that's how you look at it, you know? Like no, we keep it real. Keep it real. Yeah. 99% of all species that ever, ever inhabited this earth already extinct. There's nothing in our genetic blueprint that says, like, oh, you know, Homo sapiens need to live forever. If what this world needs for it to thrive is that we go extinct and we make room for higher sentence to rise from the ashes. So be it. I'm not attached to any particular forum or, you know, method. Yeah. You know. This whole thing is just an, an encrypted messaging app that has self-destructive messaging in it. So. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I hope we make it. We're funny. And that's something that I always value. Humor and lightness are important in this process of whatever it is that we're going through. Yeah, definitely, man. Well, yeah, definitely. And yeah, you're, you're, you're really funny. You have that sense of levity You're you're great with the memes, with the, with the photography. Um, and with the cooking I've noticed too, 
I was like, damn. I was like, Adam's making some baba ganoush. He's like, that is fresh as fuck. Like everything that you were making looks so good. And um, so, yeah, keep it up, definitely. And your writing. I mean, your writing is, I, every time I read something that you write, I just, it's just so lucid and impactful. Um, you, you, you know, I, I definitely love to chat with you a little bit more about that after the call, but tell people where they can go to find all of these things that you're doing and, and you're creating and your work and, and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, at the moment I'm kind of like working on setting up a, a website that encompasses within it, like all different platforms and, you know, like book chapters that I've written and articles, both like for more popular media, but also academic things, uh, videos online that are there floating around from conferences, different podcasts that I've done. Uh, but it's kind of in process. I don't really have something uh, yet uh, put together. But yeah, I mean, if anyone's really interested in my writings or videos and so on, just Googling my name, I will provide with a nice array of different things that you can uh, deep into. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, yeah. thanks. Thanks, Adam. Thanks so much. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Till next time. Peace. Yeah. Pleasure, Mike. And thank you for having me. It's always, it's always amazing to, to chat with you. Good work. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. All the links are in the show notes, show description. And to support Mike Adelic, you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron and get access to all kinds of bonuses like the private Mikeadelic Inner Sanctum Discord chat group, bonus episodes, more goodies, merch, things of that nature. And check out our sponsors, sheathunderwear.com. Go to sheathunderwear.com. Put in the code Mikeadelic. Get 20% off everything at sheathunderwear.com. It's awesome underwear. Go check it out. And check out Student Loan Tutor. Schedule a free evaluation. Studentloantutor.com. Tell them I sent you there. Thank you so much, all of you, to everybody who supports this show. Thank you for all the love and support, all the kind words. This show wouldn't be possible without you. You know who you are, and you know what to do if you love things. Tell people about it. Share it. Like it. Subscribe. And stay tuned for more awesome episodes like this shout out to danny barnett and galaxia for the intro and outro songs and of course to all you out there much love peace